I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about The Lighthouse, the 2019 film directed by Robert Eggers, written by Robert Eggers and Max Eggers. I'm joined today by part of the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Aran. Hello, everybody. And Brian Bittner. Ahoy, ahoy. And our guest today is a fellow YouTube video essayist. Her website and Twitter bio describes her as an actor, writer, and court jester. Maggie Mayfish, thank you for joining us today. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. What, what a wonderful film to sit down and chat about today. <laughs> yes. Very excited about it. Before we dive in, quick shout out um, for everyone listening on Spotify. Our Q&A question for you today is, what is your favorite black and white film? I really want to know. I love black and white films. There should be more of them. And I want to know what all of your favorite ones are. So let us know. And it can be old timey. Like mm -hmm. it had to be black and white or it can be new where it didn't have to be black and white, where it's more of a choice. Indeed. It could be Casablanca. And that's a great answer. Too. <laughs> and that's OK. Yes. <laughs> awesome. So, yeah. So we're here to talk about the lighthouse there's a ton of things to talk about the cinematography already we started talking about black and white the atmosphere the performances so many things but before we dive in first so our listeners can kind of get to know you a little bit better maggie mm -hmm. so you've been making videos since 2018 on youtube yes if i'm correct yes so what drew you to start making film analysis videos on youtube yeah so i worked at cracked the year right before it went under <laughs> with, with many <laughs> dear online comedy websites sites that I hold dear in my heart. Um, but yeah, so while I was working at Cracked, I wrote on a couple different shows, but a lot of the shows that I pitch had to do with movies. That's uh, my undergrad education was in theater um, and film analysis and creative writing. So yeah, so a lot of the things I was pitching, you know, is actually very similar to the things that I still do today on <laughs> YouTube. So yeah, it kind of transformed from my show at Cracked into yeah, me just uh, doing it on my own. And yeah, my background is more actor performance. Um, so I love looking at movies from that angle, just because you know, that's mm -hmm. the world that I live in. And so, yeah, I think it offers like a fun perspective. And also like being an actor, you are very powerless um, when it comes to <laughs> basically everything. So, yeah. So analyzing films is a way, yeah, to um, to speak to something uh, on an emotional level, because usually when you get to the actors, they they have to take all the themes and the emotions that you, you know, put into your film and bring it to life um so yeah a lot of my criticisms and analysis come from like oh man like <laughs> uh what would that look like when it you know gets down to that level so yeah yeah i, I love your videos i've mentioned on the podcast before your your zach snyder series was extremely <laughs> cathartic for me uh highly recommend and yeah it's film analysis it's very smart but it's also fun and entertaining and your comedy background i think informs that that makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. and so when we asked you to come on the podcast we asked you to suggest some movies for us mm -hmm. to check out and you suggested the lighthouse which is great because i hadn't seen it before trisha this was your first time watching it mm -hmm. so yeah what what do you love about the lighthouse what and maybe tell us like even the first time you saw it what was your experience watching it the first time Oh, man, the first time I watched it, I was so just enthralled that it was such a small location that, you know, everything was and very pointedly claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. um, the performances were just 
amazing. I love being immersed um, with the two being trapped in the lighthouse uh, <laughs> with them. I thought it was so simple in a way, but also very, you know, very much. It's a very competently well made film, which is hard to do. So I don't want to say it's simple in that regard, but simple in the way that it was so like it just made a meal out of everything, which I loved. Uh, and just getting to watch, uh, you know, William Defoe and Robert Pattinson <laughs> work together yep. is, is a fascinating and <laughs> And fun. Um, and it just seemed like a project that everyone had, you know, a blast making. And yeah, I loved the end result. So yeah. Yeah. It's definitely it's all those things. <laughs> it makes you feel claustrophobic. Yeah. It's it's a whole ride. I was pretty nervous going into it because I'd kind mm -hmm. of been warned that it might not be like potentially up my alley. Oh, interesting. Hmm. But I, I ended up really loving it. And Brian, you had seen it in theaters, right? Uh, no. No. Okay. I missed, but, but you had seen <laughs> uh, it no. before. I did. Yeah. I saw okay. it when I was just catching up on all the 2019 movies in like early 2020. Okay. And I knew it was probably one that I was like, is my girlfriend going to want to watch this? I don't know if she'll care or not. So I was like, <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm just going to watch it by myself. And I woke up one morning at six in the morning and I knew she'd be in bed for like hours. And I was like, I'm going to watch The Lighthouse right now. So I watched The Lighthouse for the first time <laughs> at six in the morning, which was actually so perfect because I was just so fresh and like able to focus on it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I liked it a lot. I, I really I'm like such a sucker for weird, puzzly art house kind of movies. <laughs> and I'm really happy we have this new generation of these directors who most of them are working with A24, but you've got Robert Eggers, you've got uh, Yorgos Lanthimos, who did The Lobster and The Favorite, mm -hmm. Jennifer mm -hmm. Kent, who did The Babadook, Trey Edward Schultz, It Comes at Night Waves, Ari Oster, of course, uh, Hereditary Midsummer, And I haven't loved all those movies. A lot of them feel too drawn out. Some are too pretentious. Some just leave me like wanting more at the end. But I'm very glad they exist. And I'm very glad someone is giving the money to just make like whatever <laughs> mm -hmm. crazy crap is in their head. Lots more to say, but I'll uh, I'll stop there for now. Awesome. Yeah. And Trisha, what about you? What were your, your first impressions? Yeah. So I wanted to see this movie when it came out because those that know me will know I'm a history fan, but also I'm like a weird maritime naval history <laughs> junkie. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. So my father was a sailor. He was in the Coast Guard for 20 years. Wow. And like a lot of dads, whether or not they are sailors, he is also a fan of maritime history. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I've read a lot of those like big old maritime epic book series. I'm a huge fan of Horatio Hornblower. And uh, if anyone is familiar with that and like the Master and Commander, um, you know, Aubrey Maturin movies. And mm -hmm. so this really fascinated me because I was like, we're letting somebody make like a very salty, like 1890 <laughs> maritime <laughs> thing. Uh, cool. I like that. And then I'm also fascinated by lighthouse history, which we can also get into because I was mainly grew up on the East Coast and there's like mm -hmm. a big weird culture about lighthouses mm -hmm. there and in the Great Lakes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, Maggie, you're from Michigan. Michigan, so yeah. You, you know about all about the lighthouses. Oh, so many. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I wanted to see it and I just I didn't get to it at the time. And I, I really liked it. I'm really, really glad that we... Thank you so much for bringing it to the table for us, Maggie. <laughs> yes. I have lots of thoughts. Uh, my <laughs> other thought that it was, it's a perfect like quarantine movie. Like something right? about it just yeah. like speaks to particularly now, which is, yeah. Right. Stuck in a place, kind of slowly going mad. Time <laughs> is passing question mark. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> right. How long has it been since Monday? I don't know. Days, <laughs> weeks, you know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
one of the things that I, because I, after watching it, I kind of went down a rabbit hole and watched some interviews with Robert Eggers and him talking about his process. And he talked about the difference between atmospheric films and more story-based films. Uh, And so he said, I'm going to kind of read a quote here where he's talking about if you have a a normal story-based film, basically all you need is an excellent script with a great story, serviceable performances. They don't have to be good. They just have to be serviceable. You don't need good cinematography. You don't need good art direction. You don't need good costumes. You don't need good sound design. You have to have professional sound so it's not distracting, but it's really about the script. And so that was an interesting portrait Hmm. of like Hmm. on one end of the spectrum a film where the story is doing all the heavy lifting. The lighthouse is very much not on that side of the spectrum Mm -hmm. where it's the atmosphere that's doing so much of the lifting. And he talked about atmosphere as being like an accumulation of details and almost like a a visual obstacle. And so I I found that really interesting and fascinating and curious, like Maggie, how Mm -hmm. would you even describe the atmosphere and what are the things that like pull you into this world? Because it's it's so rich, despite, as you're saying, being very focused and small. Yeah, uh, that's actually that's a great description of it, because, yeah, it has like everything about film that, you know, like the costumes are fantastic. Even the performances, the dialect is obviously like of note, Mm -hmm. but the physical performances are also, you know, like that all adds to it. So, yeah, it's almost like everything is tip top besides the script to make it such like uh, an interesting movie. But yeah, so as far as the atmosphere, yeah, a lot of the the physicality of the actors draws me in. Like you can just see it on Robert Pattinson's face, you know, mm-hmm. all the times that like William Defoe's like needling him with these like tiny comments and back and forth, you know, you, they, you can see when things like land on each other, but it's so subtle and it adds to that like atmospheric of like some. Something's going on like above and beneath the surface of what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the um, the like fairy tale elements of it add to the atmosphere as well, because it kind of pulls you out of the lighthouse, but then like throws you back in because, you know, who is like wakes up back in his bed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, things like that kind of make it. Yeah. Kind of like a um, that long poem the albatross <laughs> very much mm, yeah, like yeah. that uh, yeah a long winding like poem in a way yeah but yeah the the feeling it gives is very like evocative and like grossly sexual like things are very sexual but it's also like fart you know it's like it's time <laughs> yeah it's like tying together this idea of things are and if things are physically disgusting like the place is disgusting so it's like that mixed feeling of like sexualness but like everything is like covered in you know it's like a lot of a mixture of feelings that all come together to give you a feeling that isn't necessarily there like in the actual writing of the script i think another thing that this movie does really well is to use this aspect ratio that's uh it's not quite four three it's 1.19 to one but just sort of a squarish aspect ratio which I was against when movies started doing that in the past couple of years. I was like, look, movies are, we have wide screens now, knock it off, like stuff. <laughs> but then I saw First Reformed, which Trisha, I know you love. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's not a horror movie, but I feel like it did a better job of making me feel uneasy than most horror movies. And part of that is this like very narrow image and Ethan Hawke will like just sort of like leave the image and come back sometimes. I'm like, where'd he go? <laughs> He's yeah, gone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And The Lighthouse did a very similar thing during a 31 horror movies in October horror marathon that my girlfriend and I did. We watched Mm -hmm. in one day, Friday the 13th, uh, Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street, the first of each. And then it was like 
8 p.m. We're like, let's do one more. And I and I was looking through the list and I was like, ooh, let's watch The Witch. And I, I put on the trailer and she's like, oh man, let's watch this right now. The trailer's <laughs> got like black goat, da da da, which <laughs> by Robert Eggers for anyone who doesn't know. Then we watched it and it's a very slow kind of drama and there's like basically no witch. There's no like nothing happening. <laughs> yep. And, you know, if you go in expecting the kind of movie that it is, I think you can enjoy it. But like it sort of, I think, promises something that's not quite there. Mm -hmm. The Lighthouse, I think, promises the movie that you're going to get right in the first, you know, few minutes. Uh -huh. And I feel like it's a better horror movie by the guy who made The Witch. <laughs> but it's, yeah. it's called The Lighthouse and it's a better <laughs> horror movie than The Witch. Uh, so, yeah, I just I love the feeling of just being uneasy. And like you said, the claustrophobic feeling, the grossness, the sort of just like I am in this world 100 percent and in a way that makes me uncomfortable. And that's cool. Yeah. What you were saying about the square frame where mm -hmm. it feels like it's hiding aspects of like something is happening over there and, right. um, you know, which taps into sort of a primal like we're afraid of the dark because we don't know what's in it. The aspect ratio taps into we're afraid of anything we can't see. Right. And so having that space on the sides of the screens where we kind of intuitively sense that there's more going on that we can't see that the characters are potentially experiencing, which is a tribute to how immersive the world feels. Another big part of I think what creates that feeling is the lighting in this movie. So we talked about Mank in December and how Fincher was determined to do some old timey things and then mm -hmm. just totally didn't do other old timey <laughs> things he very easily could have done. <laughs> he made some choices. This is like seems so committed to being really immersive. And the lighting is a huge part of that to me where you can see like candles and lanterns and it feels like you know I guess I was reading that even when they were shooting outside there wasn't really enough light so they were like using muslin to bounce light off of and mm -hmm. and things to to get enough light and of course it's shot on 35 i feel like that is another thing where psychologically the frame wouldn't affect us the way that it does if the rest of the elements weren't as immersive as they are mm -hmm. but because all of those things are there it does give you that it, it's like watching a ghost story right it's like watching a very yeah, like a piece of lore, which, of course, mm -hmm. it's supposed to feel like, yeah, Samuel Taylor Coleridge kind of, mm -hmm. yeah, maritime poem kind of thing, like you were mm -hmm. saying. Yeah, lighting was very, very Linden, like very much like it mm -hmm. almost like sucked you into the frame even further, which is already right. cropped off because mm -hmm. there's only small parts of light that you can see, especially, you know, in the night scenes, you know, the night yeah. scenes. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and that shot that comes to mind is the, the first time Robert Pattinson's character goes into their like living quarters, there's, you know, like a big pillar in the middle of the room. And the right. shot composition is such that that pillar right. is like just yes. a big black bar mm -hmm. in the middle and that's obscuring Willem Dafoe. So you're already creating two mini frames inside of this already square aspect ratio and you really get that claustrophobia, but also, as you're saying, this fear of the unknown because there's something there that we can't see. I'm someone that can get annoyed by stylistic choices just for stylistic sake. Definitely. And I feel like the lighthouse is a great example of all of the style is really doing work and working together to create the atmosphere and put you into the head of these characters. And even, you know, the debate between like film versus digital, I tend to be like, well, you know, digital unless you don't have to. <laughs> but so I, I read an interview with Robert Eggers, who was then quoting an interview with Emmanuel Lubezki, uh, also known as Chivo, mm -hmm. 
who direct or was a cinematographer for lots of things, The Revenant, Children of Men, I believe. So this quote from him, the Chivo is talking about how in The Revenant, he decided to go with digital for the first time because they were doing all this like exterior natural light stuff and film just wasn't didn't have a high enough ISO to pick up all the light. And he described it as for the first time with digital, it felt like I was looking through a clean window that like through all, mm. all of film history, we've been looking through dirty windows and now there's a clean window. Interesting. And I thought that was a really cool way to describe digital. And then Robert Eggers <laughs> was like, yeah, but I like dirty windows. <laughs> yeah, right. None of that for me, please. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I will agree, though. One of the reasons I love this movie is because it does all the stylistic choices have a purpose and contribute to the story where, yeah, so often you see something that's like gimmicky or even like half of the movie's gimmicky and the other half like doesn't go, you know, so things and it just ends up feeling like, well, great, you just picked it because it looks cool. But yeah, for this, all all the interesting choices really do serve the story. Yeah, which is refreshing. <laughs> yeah, always nice to see. Always nice. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When, yeah, and you mentioned also the way it manipulates time. Yeah, I wonder if you could like talk about that too, because that was definitely something that there's a, a moment that happens early on where you Robert Pattinson's character for the first time seems confused about how much time was passing. And even like leading up to that, you know, I was watching it, my girlfriend and we were like, wait, it's been, it's already been three weeks? Wait, it's already been four <laughs> weeks? How much time has passed? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think like three quarters of the way through the movie, there's that scene where it's like, how long have we been here? You know, 10 days, 10 hours. And it's like, that's so funny. But also, yeah, like leading up to that, the film does like very much, you know, trick you, especially with the way like things are moving. Again, with Rod Pattinson, like not waking up where he fell asleep, like scenes repeating where you're like, wait, did we... We did see, we, we saw this before, he's done this chore before, or even scenes where we saw Robert Pattinson do the chore, but then William Defoe is like, you didn't do it. And it's right. like, whoa, okay, so yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we don't need to know what the truth is, because that's not, you know, necessary to the story. It is supposed to be confusing. And yeah, there's also, there's a lot of, um like, circular, right? shoot yeah the the pillar itself you know when they he goes around the stairs it's circular um mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. right after that shot we actually robert pattinson's outside but the camera is still moving in circles watching him like walk around yeah the way the camera moves it's very like cyclical and yeah continuous which this movie obviously plays a lot with uh, Greek mythology and stuff, you know, and I think that you get the very clear Sisyphus uh, kind of reference as he's pulling the the oil drum up the mm. stairs, stair by stair by stair. Mm -hmm. And then finally he gets to the top and he's like, you don't need to do that. Take it back down. And he has to take it all the way back down. And then and then, of course, just the Prometheus at of the course. end, you know, is like the the most pointed like, look, we did a thing. <laughs> look at this thing we built up towards. Mm -hmm. But it's paid off by all the 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 symbols in this movie, too, which I also love the seagulls and the mermaid and the light. You know, it's like he gets too close to the light and then 
the seagulls, which he killed one. Bad luck. This ship's now, there's a storm. The wind's changed, you know, like all that kind mm. of stuff. Like, I just like that it's very clearly sort of like doing a thing and showing you like we are referencing things that you may or may not have heard of. If you have heard of it, great. You're going to get it. But if you haven't heard of it, you know, hopefully you'll look it up later or hopefully you'll appreciate it in and of itself. But also you look it up later. And you're like, oh, you referenced that painting. You referenced that story. You know, and I just think it's fun when when art does that. We were talking in the Coraline episode about fairy tales, ghost stories and grotesques. And we were talking about the odd specificity of lore and how like even though we take fairy tales and things like that and we widely adapt and apply them like anything can be a cinderella story but yet there are really specific things about it that make it like a cinderella story mm -hmm. where it's like the fairy godmother and the pumpkins and the stepsisters and the ball and the three knights repeating and there are these very specific elements and i feel like this movie does a really good job of creating those kinds of symbols and mm -hmm. that kind of specificity that give it the lore and some of it is borrowed from lore that we're familiar with already like we talked about there's an element of like known superstition of, you know, you don't kill a seabird <laughs> and <laughs> things like that. It's bad luck. It's referencing things that we are familiar with that are already aspects of like sort of American folktales, but it's also creating its own. The fact that they're both named Thomas, you know, mm -hmm. which I guess is inspired by something real that happened. But it's the same way that we are fascinated by odd details like that, where two lighthouse keepers named Thomas... That was a real thing that happened at Small's Lighthouse and one of them died. And that was kind of like people embellished that story and everything. There's another real story that this is referencing, the Flannan Isles Lighthouse incident, where three lighthouse keepers completely disappeared in 1900, which is right around the time mm. that this movie is set. Mm. And that fascinated people so much that they started adding these weirdly specific details where they were like, there was a meal laid out, but no one had eaten the meal. There were these like logs that were referencing this storm coming in, but then there was no evidence of the storm or evidence of them being swept away. Again, we are creating like sort of specific things the way that this movie does around all of these other symbols that it's incorporating. So I think that's another big part of, again, just putting you in the headspace of it's historical. It feels really grounded, but it's also not meant to be read literally in any way. Definitely, <laughs> it's, <yeah. laughs> it's mythological. It's folklore, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, like you get into the first mermaid um, vision, probably what, 15 minutes into the movie or something. Like yeah. pretty quickly, the movie's like, yeah. this is this kind of movie. This isn't like our <laughs> gritty realism, you know, right, right. 1900 mm -hmm. Lighthouse movie. Yeah. In that same talk, Robert Eggers talked about how he likes archetypal storytelling. Yeah. Mm. So I've been watching uh, on Netflix, David Letterman's series on um, My Next Guest Needs No Introduction, where he interviews different people. And I was recently watching the one where he interviews Jay-Z. And Jay-Z is talking about how like his goal, you know, you can create kind of pop tracks that come and go, but the tracks he loves are the ones that are kind of forever tracks. Mm. And so he's kind of constantly chasing, creating a song that'll last forever and be relevant for forever. And this kind of archetypal storytelling that's happening and having this film be set in the past and all these things make it feel like it, it won't age. Like it, it yeah. feels like it's mm -hmm. from a different time mm -hmm. while also being really modern and speaking to us today. And I think that's a rare thing to find a film that can do both of those things at once. And I think it's just really impressive. Yeah, it's something I find with uh, with music. It's like you have you know, the Gnarls Barkley album from 2005 or whatever that's like you're obsessed with for about a month. And you're like, I never want to hear this again, <laughs> ever. And then a lot of my favorite music, it's like it takes me 
five or six listens for I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. And then I never get sick of it. You know, and I think you mm-hmm. get the same thing. We we just talked about Birdman, you know, like movies where first time through, maybe you're not like blown away, but then each time you're like, I like this more. And uh, I like movies that sort of, I don't need to love it the first time because I'm willing to go back in and sort of keep giving it more time, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that's what you get with a lot of these sort of artsy kind of heady movies is like <laughs> they um, reward rewatching. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, this movie definitely has that like sense of ambiguity that it's like, especially with the ending. Um, I read a brief interview uh, with the director and he mentioned uh, Lost Highway as being an inspiration for this nice. movie again. Yeah, how it's very like, it's so easy to like revisit and go back and watch it again because it's like, you know, it's not like a story that wraps up with a nice little bow. It's like, well, I guess <laughs> right. I know how Paddington 2 ends, um, but... <laughs> So yeah, upon rewatch, you can, you know, get different things out of it. And yeah, that like ambiguous nature of it is, yeah, fun to go back and relook at. Yeah. And I think it's that the blend of there's enough story that you're hooked, but the atmosphere is so rich and and it's dripping that it's like it's a world that I want. Not that I want to be in. (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to be in the lighthouse with them. (laughs) Right. But like the experience of watching the film, like it feels like a place in my head and not just like a movie. And it's like I want to go back and revisit that place, Mm -hmm. which is pretty cool. You talked earlier, Maggie, about the performances. And I'm curious because you have a performance background. Mm -hmm. How do you judge a performance? Like for you, what what makes a performance good? That's interesting. (laughs) Because it, it can be... Subjective. I know different people have different things, but yeah, I'm curious for you. That's true. For the most part, I, judging is a harsh word, but for, for the <laughs> most part, I will basically be enamored with almost any performance. Like Vanessa Hudgens in The Princess Switched Again is an amazing performance. Like, regardless <laughs> nice. of the film, you can tell that she herself, as an actor, is, you know, fully immersing herself in the story, you know, just things like that that you can kind of pick up on and really you can kind of just almost tell if the actor like wants to be there I guess which seems (laughs) like a very like unscientific way to think about it but truly like a performance that feels like it's really pulling you in and drawing you in it's because like the actor is drawn in and pulled in and yeah with William Defoe and Robert Pattinson like when they're (laughs) in each other's faces going like no you no you like <laughs> with me <laughs> with me yes <laughs> like they they are the only two people in the room and you know which is obviously not that you know they're surrounded by sound people the director like that's not the reality but when you're watching it that is the reality and so to me that is a great performance yeah when you just can't almost like parts of the movie fall deeper into place because you're not you know, distracted by, you know, uh, something that feels out of place in a character's performance. I guess for me personally, and I mentioned this earlier, but physicality is important, especially to me as an actor, my comedy background. When you see like actors, like how they physically move in this space, that adds so much that I think a lot of people, you know, watching it probably wouldn't even like think about. But yeah, just like, like you can see like the stress on both of their bodies and like, and the way that they like lie in bed and like crouch over and move like that Mm. adds so much there's so much storytelling even when there's no words being said so i think really that's what takes the both of their performances to the next level yeah i don't understand how willem dafoe was not 
no- nominated for this performance, I let guess. alone one like one two years in a row. They should have just like the next year been like <laughs> you get another one for the lighthouse. Like it blows my mind he wasn't nominated. Yeah, I do feel like because it's William Defoe, I think a lot of people will watch this and be like, "Well, it's William Defoe like doing well." You know, it, it almost <laughs> seems like it would right. be easy for him and can't see the like like the hard work that goes into making that dialect like part of your body like your mouth mm-hmm. physically needs to learn how to move in that way in such a way that it feels like you've been talking that way forever which he's a very talented actor so you know i'm sure it, well, you know it's with definitely within his wheelhouse but there's so much work that goes into that and yeah the physicality and all the scenes really play out like um like a play very much yeah there's no cuts it's very much uh you know yeah like a play which is a very different prep work than when you're filming something because usually when you're filming you can look at the script and like you know there's there are different things you can do but they both have theater backgrounds and they both you know are very serious actors who take their craft very seriously and yeah you can see that in the scenes when they work together it does have a play like quality like they've been you know rehearsing for you know for months yeah i love the language which is written here incredibly but as you're pointing out it's delivered just unbelievably like robert pattinson's accent is what's called like a a down easter accent which is from like upper new england like coast of maine the down easter accent if you're familiar with it is not today now what it was in in 1890 but it's such a hard and weird accent that like you know i feel like when you read actors resumes and they're like i could do a scottish accent or i can do an australian accent no one's like i've got a down easter accent in here (laughs) and especially not one from that specific time period and it's different than willem dafoe's accent in this their Mm -hmm. ways of communicating are completely different the syntax and rhythm of their speech the cadence of their speech are completely different that are placing them in different worlds and i would almost say like even social classes even though they're both like you know working men essentially mm. and it does create that sense of some rootedness which i think you need to relate to the characters at all but also a sense of mystery where they have stories upon stories upon stories that we have not heard or like couldn't possibly guess at So when Willem Dafoe is talking about, you know, his character is discussing like being at sea and having scurvy and everyone's (laughs) teeth are falling and toes are falling off or whatever it is. You're like, yeah, probably like (laughs) it's the language as it's written, but it's also in the performance, in the delivery of like either he really saw all of this and it happened or he's told this story a hundred times and it's so natural to him that he's really good at telling it that feeling of the characters being lived in Mm -hmm. you know echoes back that feeling of lore where there's like they're telling stories about their past and maybe they're true maybe they're not but there's truth in them and that's like projected at every word that these characters speak it's cool it's so cool (laughs) it's so cool Maggie, you mentioned this this feeling of you can feel when the actor wants to be there. I immediately flashed back to we did a podcast about the Star Wars prequels and uh, in Revenge of the Sith. I feel like you can feel that Natalie Portman really does not want to be there. Yeah. Oh, poor Natalie. She's been through so much. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great stark uh, mm-hmm. yeah, juxtaposition. Kind of like you're saying there at the intro too, it's almost like the, the same way atmosphere is this kind of accumulation of details and, and kind of what you were saying, Maggie, too. That there's all these little things in the yes. performance. It's not mm-hmm. just 
you know, the line reading that's happening, but all these little things that make them feel like they are in this place and bring you into that place. And there's even, I found it more impressive because for me, there were some hurdles like, you know, Robert Pattinson is Robert Pattinson. So sometimes it can be hard to. Yeah, that's a hurdle. He'd be himself. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. Right. But he totally did it for me. And Willem Dafoe, at the very beginning, I was getting a little bit of like, I'm watching The Life Aquatic here because it's Willem <laughs> Dafoe. And it's, but it's totally different by the end. So yeah, it's, yeah, the performances are really, really great. And hearing about Willem Dafoe talked a little bit about his process and his relation to backstory and how he feels like, you know, you can't play backstory. You can only kind of play what's happening in the room, your actions, but you can draw upon that to inform how you pursue your actions and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I feel like I want to have a couple of drinks with Willem Dafoe, to be honest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, wouldn't that be a wonderful? Uh, that would be so much yeah. fun. He also sought out uh, Robert Eggers, and I just feel like he's yeah. constantly like Whoa. looking like for like the Lars von Triers. He's just like, who's the next like messed up? <laughs> right? Who is the weirdest guy I can work yeah, with? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Who's going to give me something like that? I mean, yeah, these are the roles that he's like. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. He's like, I got a face for weird movies. Let's do this. <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> but it's also not just completely over the top. Like it's it's right. not because I feel like there, mm-hmm. that's another version of, you know, acting that can maybe pull you out of it is when people are spending too much time like, you know, luxuriating and the over the top and I'm going to get to make crazy faces. Mm-hmm. So getting to play these scenes that are big and there are these dramatic turns and he has mm-hmm. some crazy monologues <laughs> so to to do it but also make it feel like real and believable is just the finesse required to do that is mm-hmm. very impressive yeah and to be able to take all the lines and make them like active mm. which is another like you know when actors will just say their line and it feels like something's missing it's usually because actually when we're talking we're we're doing something, you know, with our words or whatever. Yeah. And both actors are so great and so present with each other that, yeah. So when they're talking, it it feels more like a a ping pong match than, you know, two actors just yelling at each other in a lighthouse. Yeah. Saying lines. Yeah. (laughs) Right. In a, you know, we made the distinction at the beginning about like a story movie versus an atmosphere movie. And in a story movie, we're always talking about, well, what's what's the motivation in this scene? What's the goal in this scene? Mm-hmm. And this movie does like almost a really purposeful job of stripping goals out of mm-hmm. scenes. Yeah. There is no motivation. Jello. The motivation no. is to pass the time, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it's shifting so quickly minute to minute that it doesn't matter. And I feel like that's really hard or would be hard for an actor to play if you don't know you know, sort of what you're aiming for, you don't have a goal in a scene, then you're like, well, then why am I saying this monologue? What does any of this mean? Right. Yeah. And being able to keep those kinds of scenes as riveting as these are is such a tribute to the writing. But yeah, definitely to the performances. And as you're saying, their interaction with each other, it feels like the scene is going somewhere, even though it's not. Or like, we have no idea where it's going. Yeah, there's there's still a sense of momentum to the relationship. Mm -hmm. it's almost like the same scene over and over again but the thing that is changing is like that the power dynamics between Mm -hmm. them and and we are kind of able to track subconsciously maybe even the slight shift or like where they were before and now where they are now they're getting super drunk and they're gonna fight each other now they're gonna (laughs) sleep on each other's cuddle and like all these things but like amidst all that there is all this this power uh, shift happening and we're getting closer to complete insanity which is 
really fun. <laughs> and so, yeah, kind of to that note, I'm, I'm curious because this is a, a film where there are, are lots of symbols and, and things in here and maybe it's not easily dissected or there there isn't maybe a clear you should take this away from <laughs> there's this not movie. one reading <laughs> right yeah i'm curious maggie what are some of the things that you find interesting that you see in this film that you enjoy thinking about oh man was this was this a setup so i could talk about how gay it is okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i definitely adhere to uh edgar's assertion that he has many themes going on and yeah none of his movies are you know specifically just about one thing however uh <laughs> this movie has so much symbolism um about their relationship which is a power dynamic uh shift which also entails some sexual elements, uh, which is also a kind of power struggle. So I think that mm -hmm. is super interesting and, and adds a lot to, um, you know, the, the surface story of, you know, two guys in a lighthouse. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I wrote down a couple things. I, you know, every time they cut away to a mystical creature being sexual in the ocean, it's like, all right, if, if we know that there's no mermaid, then who was that you know um <laughs> the characters like lying to themselves lying to each other uh, you know just a lot of intimate scenes um that you know will cut away abruptly and it's like wait a minute what happened right after they got done talking <laughs> the seagulls who are you know effervescent like peering in on them through the windows which is very like you know very um evasive yeah there's there's one particular uh sequence when they're cutting between robert pattinson uh having hanky panky with the mermaid mm -hmm. and that uh harpoon shot which is very like <laughs> <Yeah>. very <laughs> phallic image um the lighthouse itself being a very phallic symbol um yeah and you know there there's a lot of like less subtler <laughs> moments of them you know basically just looking in on each other being completely naked or you know doing lightly sexual things that just adds like a layer to yeah these two people who are alone in a lighthouse and kind of speaks to that like you know that and i think both of them assert very you know that they are straight and then they both talk about you know women or you know things like that nature but then somehow those scenes always turn it into into them being very like drunk and singing together and like mm -hmm. being in each other's faces so yeah it's just it's a nice little sprinkling uh of a layer throughout that i think is really fun and you know adds to the atmospheric nature of it all <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> well it's interesting to me because in maritime lore especially you know you have these single sex environments on sailing vessels, which have always, you know, that's always been like women are not allowed to sail in, mm -hmm. in old timey sailing things. There's always these undertones of hierarchy and power dynamic, who's in charge, right? Like, and how to mm -hmm. bring sailors, you know, unruly men under, you know, into submission, essentially. And no matter like whether that's in a naval context, whether that's in just like a more commercial sailing context in history and in lore, it's a very present theme, which is if we are isolated, we are fighting for survival against the elements, against the gods, fate, 
everything, then someone mm. needs to be in charge, which means someone needs to be dominant and everybody else has to obey pretty much. Again, within the context specifically historically of masculinity, mm-hmm. this is drawing from this long tradition of masculine power struggles in these kinds of like survivalist places. And I think it's so fascinating that like all of the imagery in here about, you know, Poseidon and sea gods and curses and that kind of thing where there's a sense of helplessness, I guess, or just like fate, like neither one of them is going to survive if they don't like, you know, Mm -hmm. basically fall into submission. It's just a really interesting look at that aspect of something very primal, right? Survivalist narratives are about our most primal impulses. There's a reason why survivalist narratives like The Revenant are about like, well, who would you murder? Would you eat their corpse, right? <laughs> yeah. Those kinds of questions are what arise in survivalist narratives because it's about like, who are we deep, deep, deep down? And questions about sexuality are exactly those kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's another unavoidable thing in this kind of narrative. And it's smart the way that Eggers leans into it and makes mm-hmm. sort of a whole thing about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get that with like with alcohol too. Like alcohol is exactly. a very similar, yeah. like a very simple example of something that's like, I'm not like this. I'm not a person who does this until I'm stranded and there's like, okay. <laughs> so I'm drinking turpentine. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actual turpentine by the end of the movie. Provisions. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, you get that with sexuality. You get that with a with the power dynamic or, or sort of the the power struggle, I should say, that that uh, Robert Pattinson is going through. You know, it's funny because there's a quote from Robert Eggers where he said that he was asked, you know, are these characters like, what are you saying about their sexuality? He said, am I saying these characters are gay? No. I'm not saying they're not either. Forget about complexities of human sexuality or their particular inclinations. I'm more about questions than answers in this movie. The end of that quote, regardless of like the sexuality conversation, that quote sort of stuck with me in terms of like, yeah, this does feel like a movie that's more about questions than answers. In a way, maybe I'm not super fond of. You are left with the sense of like, so did you, were you trying to say something with all of this? Or were you <laughs> just like, here's some weird images. How do, what, what do you think? You know? And, uh, but again, most movies don't ask enough questions in the first place so mm-hmm. I, li- I like that mm-hmm. this movie does uh but i just thought it was a funny quote like i don't really have a lot of answers like okay because that's kind of how i felt watching it. <laughs> yeah that's kind of how what i took no, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well yeah there's like there's enough of a story i think that you you do feel like you've been told the story by Definitely. the end or at least i did yeah and it does raise all these questions and it was really interesting you know just its examination of masculinity and basically put this kind of like you know, stereotypical vision of masculinity in this high pressure situation where a lot of the things that are associated with like hyper masculinity are working against you. And like, it's kind of, I read it anyways, part of what was like driving them crazy. And it took, you know, all this breaking down of all these mental constructs before they were able to just like hug and like embrace. And like, Mm -hmm. it's kind of sad that it requires four weeks of isolation and pressure and insanity to like allow that kind of relationship to form. It's all really interesting. And I feel like this movie does for me anyway, thread that needle of giving me enough that I feel like I've been told the story and I am satisfied, but also raises all these questions. And as you've said, Maggie, like there's enough ambiguity there that you can extract meaning from it as you like. And also, you know, the questions that it raises, I think challenges 
certain things. And, and I, I appreciate when movies do that, like make me think about it and try to figure out like, what would I be like in this situation? My girlfriend when watching it was like, what if this was like two women? Like, I feel like everything would be like... The best kept lighthouse in the world. Yeah. <laughs> right. The completely different. Yeah. yeah. Come on in, mermaid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how did it go? Well, one of us did murder the other one. Oh. <laughs> oh. Everything's neat and clean. Yeah. The light is perfectly tended. Mm-hmm. Everything's mm-hmm. rationed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take away from the lighthouse? Uh, Maggie, will you go last? We'll save we'll save our guest for last. Brian, what lessons are you going to take away from the lighthouse? So we talked about Birdman recently, and I talked about how I really liked that it had these very visible themes. Some movies sort of bury their themes, and some movies are like, "We need to tell you this message." And Birdman was a nice. We're going to dangle all these in front of you so you can see that they're there. And that's how I feel about the lighthouse and symbols. I just, you know, Trisha wrote our. Uh, Awesome video about parasites with the symbols that are there, some of which I noticed the first time through, some of which I didn't. But with the lighthouse going in for the second time, I was like, I'm going to write down every time there's a seagull. I'm going to write down every time there's a mermaid. I'm going to write down every time they talk about the light. So you're writing our video about the lighthouse is what I'm hearing, right? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, I have a whole track. Volunteered. But yeah, there's so many like the light itself, you know, oh, the light belongs to me. And like the light is salvation. The previous lighthouse keeper, you know, like he thought the light was salvation and all this kind of stuff. And I think that especially in weird movies that aren't just like a simple, you know, drama or whatever, it gives you something to latch on to, to sort of go, okay, I don't know what the hell's happening here, but I see that thing and I can sort of track the life of that thing throughout this movie. I I love movies that are puzzles and heady and that kind of thing, but sometimes they're just too alienating and I just don't care. And I just, I just remove myself from the situation. I'm like, I'm done, whatever. (laughs) Strong symbols, strong motifs. It's a really good way for the audience to to lean in and go, oh, I have to figure this out. We all had that friend in 1999 who saw American Beauty and went, but what do the roses mean? (laughs) What do they mean? You know? And it's like, that's a good question. What do they mean? What do you think they mean? You know, and suddenly now they're leaning into the symbols. They're leaning into the movie instead of just being like, well, that was a weird movie that I don't care about. It gives you something to sort of like think about and sort of track. What did I see? When did I see it? How did it happen? What was the arc? You know, what was the seagull arc? What was the arc with the light, alcohol, uh, the power dynamics? All of these things are just things that you can very easily latch onto in a movie that can be a little uh, disorienting. It kind of reminds me of our episode on Apocalypse Now when I think, Trisha, you pointed out that the plot is super simple. It's just like, we need to get from here <laughs> right. to there. And it's simple enough, but there's enough drama there that you can connect to that and follow it. And then it's all these other things that are added that create the meaning. And I think that's that's kind of what you're saying really nicely, Brian, is that there's mm-hmm. because these symbols are there, they're adding this meaning and and creating an emotional experience in the absence of like complex plot mechanics or something. And yeah, I think it works very well in this movie for sure. Trisha, what about you? What's your lesson? Yeah. um, So earlier I was talking about how it feels like the characters don't necessarily have goals in scenes, which I basically stand by. But I do think that the characters themselves, as we meet them at the beginning of the movie, do have some like inherent conflict built into them. And I think that that's smart character design, where if you are going to approach a movie, not from a story perspective with like, you know, your very solid, like superhero structure to it, if you are going to do that, and I think that there is room in the market for that, as this movie proves, and many others, Brian, you were pointing out that right now is a great time if you like to make unhinged sort of weird art <laughs> movies. <Yeah. laughs> your time is now. Um, but if you're 
you're if you are approaching that, the character design needs to come built with conflict, loaded with conflict. And so giving Robert Pattinson's character a secret is a really good way to do that, where mm. he's mm-hmm. actively concealing something. He comes in with like this newfound sobriety where he's like, I don't want to drink. And that's all Willem Dafoe is interested in getting him to do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There is a power struggle, as we talk about, where Robert Pattinson immediately wants to be like an equal lighthouse tender where he's taking care (laughs) of the light. And Willem Dafoe doesn't want to let him do that. Even if the character motivations within the scenes are not necessarily like a point A to point B, I'm trying to get, you know, this character to tell me this thing. They're not as actionable as that. But the characters themselves do not mesh together well. If you are going to do this kind of exploratory writing from a screenwriting point of view, which, you know, my understanding, I don't know a ton about the development process, but my understanding is there was definitely like a, let's just sort of explore the psychology of these characters and then have it go worse and worse and worse for them, right? Trap them here, take away all of their food, (laughs) you know, give them some curses and some storms and some, you know, whatever. If you are going to do this kind of exploratory, almost, you know, play-like writing, as you pointed out, Maggie, start with really strong character design and load your characters with hidden motivations, conflict, all of this stuff, and then put them in a scene together and let them play. And, you know, I would be interested to know how much after the casting was locked in, how much of the ideas behind the characters then, you know, bled back into the writing. And it, as we talked about it, obviously it's there in the performances. So just a good rule of thumb, I think, if you're going to do this kind of script. Yeah, definitely. Earlier when you were talking about the sort of theaterness of it, I was having flashbacks to to studying theater in college. You know, you have to do the work of like, what is your character's objective with every line? And we said this is a a movie where it feels like they don't have objectives, but I guarantee you they knew what their objective was. Mm -hmm. I did a a David Mamet play where my character was very quiet and like half my lines were no and I don't know. It was a two person play, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But like I had to know exactly why I was saying I don't know or why I was saying no and that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And I feel like you get that from all of the storytellers involved in this movie, not just the actors, but also the writer, obviously, and director. I love the moment where Willem Dafoe needs validation about his cooking. Like, so <laughs> <Yes>! badly. <laughs> Me lobster. Yeah, exactly. But it is like that's that's an actionable motive in that moment, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's kind of what you're yeah. saying there, Bri. Yeah, like they each have vulnerabilities. And, mm-hmm. and like you're saying, they have this, these histories and it gets hinted at really early on. I, I was rewatching part of the movie this morning and forgot how early on you see Robert Pattinson has that vision of all the logs in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And the first time you're like, what is this? This logs. is super weird. Yeah. And then the second time you're like, oh, right. And so, yeah, burying all of that and making sure that's that's present. Also, the scene where they're just yelling what back and forth. <laughs> yeah. like, like every what is like a specific what. Like I love right. that. It's, I love yeah, it. Mm-hmm. It's really great. Um, yeah. So my lesson is the importance of atmosphere. I think because it's a, a tricky thing to pin down, I tend to like things that can be dissected into clear parts and I can point to them and see like A plus B plus C equals this thing. For some reason, watching this movie and then listening to the talk that Robert Eggers gave made the importance of atmosphere click and this idea of it's an accumulation of details. And I think hearing it described that way and also watching this film and feeling the result of that, this was maybe the first time that it felt truly undeniable that it it needed to be shot on film. They needed to be on location. Like they needed all Mm -hmm. of these things, the set design, all of it needed to be the way it was. And all that contributed to the experience in an undeniable way. So that's something that I'm going to be thinking about a lot moving forward because it's clearly a very powerful tool once you can understand how to wield it. 
Maggie, thank you again for making me watch this movie because I learned a lot. Oh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> and so, yeah, what about you? What's your lesson? Jumping off of what you guys all said, uh, I'm a sucker for movies that are light on plot. That's like, I, I've i seen so many movies in my lifetime. But yeah, those are those are always so fun to me. And especially as an actor, because you can only play character like that. That is your job. It's your job to, to be the character, to inhabit the character. And obviously, you should know the story, but you're, you know, you can't know what comes late. You know, right. like those are things that you can't as an actor, like getting, you know, seeing something like this, like, yeah, it's exactly it because they don't, you know, there's no plot that they need to play. They can purely just play these characters at this moment in person with each other. So yeah, and because of, because there's light on plot, yeah, I mean, you just, it highlights so many other things that filmmakers have to play with from the costuming to, yeah, like how gritty is your window um, <laughs> to dialect to, uh, you know, physicality to cutaways. I, I loved all the times that, you know, it was like, jarring on purpose um, you know, mm -hmm. cutting away from one of the characters and he created so many emotional moments through all these you know like film techniques that yeah ended up making a great story even though yeah plot wise <laughs> <laughs> minimal yeah minimal yeah but also yeah that these are the type of stories that actors can have so much fun with and it's no surprise at least to me that william defoe was like yeah you know <laughs> yeah these are the kind of things that actors like you know him would yeah love to do because it's really fun <laughs> how cool is it that robert eggers people are just letting him make these very deep obscure historical mm -hmm. weird slow it's moving wonderful. <laughs> right mm -hmm. atmospheric things more power to him like you know i'm probably too scared to watch the witch although maybe if i can handle this i can handle it but guarantee you it's not scary too much yeah. <laughs> much to my disappointment that october evening yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, but i just love that we have somebody out there that's like i'm gonna write indecipherable dialogue <laughs> right. from the 1600s mm -hmm. and you're gonna like it audience <laughs> i love it although I, I do think it's funny that you know anytime someone says they based their language on other works of the time you know books that someone someone had written and that kind of thing i always just imagine someone 100 years from now saying like i want to make a movie that sounds authentically early 2000s so i grabbed juno the west wing and moonrise kingdom <laughs> and here we go <laughs> it's like it's like you're basing your language off of fiction from the time which is all you can do obviously you know but it's all i always wonder you know whenever the oxford english dictionary is like here was the first time this word was used i'm like that's the first time that word was written down somewhere that you found <laughs> right. so like it's probably existed mm -hmm. for a long time right hearing him talk about the insane research process that that did go into mm -hmm. his version mm -hmm. like you know reading primary sources and secondary sources and people that studied language he would read their biographies and just the it sounds like there was a lot that was put in but then also that had to be kind of you know still converted to you know kind of their own dialect for yeah. this movie because you can't make it spot on obviously right yeah mm -hmm. And and also I just wanted to mention the sound design also is just super great. And and like you're saying, um, yeah, having this minimal plot lets you let all these other aspects of filmmaking and the creative process like do a lot of the heavy lifting and sound is obviously great. That damn foghorn. It's just constant. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I wrote a tweet, I think, today that was like, it has the Nolan foghorn, but it's an actual foghorn. <laughs> right. Amazing. You know, it's 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 it insane. It's great. <laughs> should be there it sounds so modern though to my ear i don't know it's really cool where even though it might be a historically accurate foghorn it has a weird 
yeah creepy modern okay. sound to it yeah great yeah. job everybody it's like anytime anytime a phone is ringing in a movie and someone won't pick it up because they're like arguing or whatever and you're like just pick up the phone like the foghorn <laughs> is right. that for an entire movie not <laughs> right. so much that you feel like you want to turn it off but enough that it's just always kind of like scratching at you yeah yeah, yeah. Although I read that there's a there's a scene where Robert Pattinson is painting with a paint roller, and that apparently wasn't invented until 1954. So actually, this movie is oh, literally no. un, literally unwatchable. <laughs> uh, we'll throw it out. <laughs> Why don't we go around and say what we've been watching recently? My random number generator has generated a number three, which I've assigned to you, Trisha. What have you been watching recently? <laughs> wow. Um. Thank you. So. During lockdown, now that it's been almost a year of that, I watched the entirety of the TV show Cheers, and (laughs) (laughs) which is only 260 episodes of TV or something like that. So on, you know, it was actually less than one a day, if you really think about it that way. But I finished all of Cheers and I, wow. I it's a wonderful show and I do recommend it. So recently I finished Cheers like a month ago or so. And I was like, now what? I need something that is going to make me happy, but not. um, Yeah, I don't know what next. And so I tried to watch Frasier and I don't like it. I'm sorry mm. to say. I like Frasier. Mm. Interesting. No. I was a big Frasier fan. It has the guy from uh, Cheers in it. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Really, Brian? Really? Yeah, yeah. Really? Just... Uh, so then, so now, <laughs> I made a, I made a hard switch. I made a choice, and I've embarked upon the journey. I've started watching Mash. Nice. Wow. I am now watching Mash from the beginning. Down, this down, is down, what down. we're doing now. Oh wow! Have you seen it before? Barely. Like it was okay. the same thing with Cheers, where it's like maybe I saw an episode here and there, but no, I haven't. We are back at the first season of MASH. Wow. And uh, we are doing it. Alan Alda is being himself and uh, be, being Hawkeye, being, you know, Hawkeye. And um, <laughs> what an experience. Anyway, if you haven't watched MASH or Cheers and you're looking for something that's not going to bum you out even more, definitely recommend. The entirety of MASH is on Hulu. You're welcome. Nice. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Mash. Great. All right. Cool. Random number generator says it's just going back and forth constantly. So, Brian, what have you been (laughs) watching recently? Speaking of Hulu, um, I'm a little late to the party, but I'm finally a member of the Pen15 Club. Ah. Oh. Uh, Yeah. I am in love with it so much. I'm very sad that there are only a finite number of episodes. For anyone who doesn't know what it is, it's co-created by Maya Erskine and Anna Conkle, who are in their early 30s, but play 13-year-old sort of fictional versions of themselves in the early 2000s. And I was kind of turned off by that at first uh, when I saw marketing for it. It's a Lonely Island production. So I was like, it's like Andy Samberg going to show up in braces as one of their cousins, and it's going to be all like... (laughs) (laughs) crazy over-the-top comedy and it's really not like they do go to crazy over-the-top places but they also go to these very real relatable places and it sort of finds this like really lovely balance between the two they do such a good job of making you just believe that they're these 13 year old characters so you become invested in in what they're dealing with maya especially sort of the more volatile of the characters she like she is crying and throwing a tantrum about something. And I just completely am with her. Like I'm suddenly 13 years old and I'm like, you are embarrassing her mom. And yeah, I just like, I just fell in love with the show really hard. Uh, Pen 15. Can't wait for new episodes. Check it out. Nice. Awesome. Maggie, what have you been watching? Yeah, uh, I watched two movies recently um, that I really liked. Uh, Watermelon Man, which have you guys ever seen? That? I know I both those I words. Have. 
okay. I know both those words. Yeah, it's from 1970. So, you know, it's a, it's an old mm. way. I think it's on the Criterion channel. Um, it was fantastic. I, I laughed throughout the whole thing. It was great. Uh, it was directed by Melvin Van Peebles, starring Godfrey Cambridge. Uh, very over-the-top uh, comedy inspired by Kafka's Metamorphosis. Oh. So, and it has a lot of, yeah. I'm into this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it's fantastic. It's a, it's about uh, a uh, white salesman um, who wakes up and and is a black man uh, played by a black actor throughout all of it. But it's it's fantastic. Um, and yeah, it's one of those that it feels like depressingly relevant. Um, mm. But it is it is so funny um, and a and a really great film. Uh, and the filmmaker is very talented. Um, so I would recommend that. And then I, this would be a great double feature. Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. <laughs> yeah. They have very similar like energy levels in these movies, <laughs> which is just great. And just like a, a wonderful break, uh, especially in Coors, where it's just yeah. like, I feel like I'm going bananas. And both of these movies are like, absolutely yeah, right there with you. So yeah, I recommend both. They're both uh, really good, good comedies. Nice. Very nice. Yeah, I like that as a double feature too. That's a fun. (laughs) Or Barb and Star and the Lighthouse, just like two people sort of going crazy together. You know, right? True, very true. (laughs) What have you been watching, Michael? So I randomly sat down one morning and turned on Disney Plus, and just I turned on the Apple TV. Disney Plus was already there, and the Imagineering Story, which is a documentary series on the Imagineers, Disney Imagineers, was just sitting there and we were like all right let's try it and we turn it on and we became obsessed like hooked on this show like in a way that i haven't been since like dark for some Whoa. reason which oh. makes no sense because it's just a documentary about the imagineers over the years but it's really well done it's created by leslie iWorks. it's narrated by angela bassett it's totally like disney propaganda also but it also <laughs> like everything mm-hmm. on disney plus right. yeah yeah but it, it does spend a lot of time going into what it's like to be an imagineer and the different struggles that they faced over the different eras of time and reveal how like a lot of the rides work and kind of like for the first time go behind the scenes and it's just it's really fascinating to to go on that journey and and it's just really well executed. Somehow every episode has a cliffhanger. It's, it's, uh, it's weird. Docu series? Yeah, it's weird. It's usually because like somebody dies, someone important in the Disney like Enterprise dies at the end, and then it's like, well, now what's going to happen now that Walt Disney isn't here? Like, what's going to happen to the Imagineers? Tune in next time. <clears throat> the Imagineering story available on Disney Plus. It's pretty fun. Nice. And I figured it couldn't be a coincidence that there were two people with the last name Iwerks. So I just looked up and confirmed that she is the granddaughter of Oob Iwerks, who designed like Mickey Mouse and like all these classic Mm, uh, cartoons from way back. Yeah, makes sense that the name sounded familiar. So that Mm. makes sense. Awesome. This has been our conversation about The Lighthouse. Maggie, thank you so much for joining us. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. This was this was fun. What a fun movie to to talk about. Yes, it's really conversation starter. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's a good way to describe it. We owe you for bringing it to the table for sure. Yes. <laughs> so absolutely, check out Maggie's YouTube channel, which is called Maggie Mayfish. We'll have a link in the show notes. Um, yeah, it's great. It's fun. It's smart and it's entertaining. What more do you want? <laughs> we want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. Thank you to our producer Vince Major and our editor. Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker. I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Maggie Mayfish. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet. Say hi. Let us know what you think about the Lighthouse. We love hearing from you. And we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.